Taylor, and it's you. You know what that music means? It's the last radio hour of the week. And this, the second dialogue of the Hillsdale Dialogue series in the new decade. I have been talking about great power competition with Dr. Larry Arn for many years. This week he is joining us as well as Dr. David Stewart, a professor at Hillsdale in the, Hill, in the history department, who Larry Arn has been hiding from me because he is a double degree from The Ohio State University. Dr. Stewart, welcome. I am, a, I am ashamed to say I did not know we had a Buckeye up there, alone, surrounded, holding out against the minions of Michigan on every side of you, and I'm glad to bring you help. Thank you. <laughs> what, uh, how long have you been up there? 26 years. Oh, my goodness. And you had to put up with Michigan fans for 26 years? Yes, sir. Do you hide in the weeds? Do you put your scarlet and gray in the bottom drawer? No, I put it out where everybody can see it, just to make sure they know we're here. Very good. Uh, Arn is not yet woken up, so we're going to proceed without him. Uh, the background to this is this. Uh, over the last three months, I read Dr. Kissinger's On China, Michael Pillsbury's The 100-Year Marathon, Graham Allison's Destined for War, Roger, uh, Robert Kaplan's Asia Cauldron, it's clear that the great power competition of the next 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, is between us and China. Do you agree with that, Professor Stewart? I think that's a very safe assessment, yes. Okay, so what do we need to know became my major question. Because I've got everything from Mao forward down pretty well. I even have a pretty good grip on Xi Jinping. But I really don't know what are the historic forces that Americans should be aware of in the way that we're aware of the founding we're aware of the czars. We're aware of, of Bismarck. We're aware of Queen Victoria. We don't know anything about China, I think, generally speaking. Where do we begin? I think this, probably the most foundational truth to understand about China is that they see things in a very, very long term, much more so than we do in the West. They have a long history, 6,000 years of essentially the same political and cultural tradition. It's been inflected at different points, but that, that, that single tradition that we don't have, and thus what we would think of as being long-term, they often would think of as short-term. That's only 500 years ago. It's only 1,000 years ago. And we just don't think in those terms often. You know, uh, Dr. Stewart, that's 25 United States histories. When you say they have a history of 6,000 years that's 25 times the history of our republic. That's remarkable. And even the, some of the roots of our republic. Before there was Rome, there was China. Wow. Okay. So how does that, when, when you say that, what are we referring back to in the, in the midst of time? Do we have a good history of how they function as a people and how they develop their institutions? Better than many parts of the world. Certainly there's... Um, Obviously, historians would always like more information, more particulars. But we have a lot of solid understanding in a broad sense, not particular details, but many of the current cultural and political understandings of China, we have solid archaeological evidence going back to two and 3,000 B.C. And so does China welcome... First of all, historical scholars to come in and examine that evidence. Do they have a narrative that they have agreed upon, even through the CPR, the Cultural Revolution? Uh, or is it all wiped away in the service of the party? Um, can I say yes to both? Yes. Yes, you can. Um, 
certainly they, they welcome scholars. There's lots that they don't really care how it's interpreted. There are particular elements, particular stories that certain people, at least within the party, want understood in very particular ways. But broadly speaking, there is more freedom of interpretation for some of this ancient history than we might expect. Now, Dr. Stewart, the, the thing I remember from Dr. Kissinger's book most vividly is he told the tale of the Yellow Emperor, which is China's founding myth. But he, was, he, he took great pains to emphasize their founding myth, like Romulus and Remus, uh, right. like Aeneas. Their founding myth presumes a China in existence already, which means they don't have a founding myth. They just have a first story. And then something, particularly in the last 20 years, a lot of archaeology has brought out how many competing cultures there were in Paleolithic, Neolithic, Bronze Age China that simply aren't mentioned. For example? Um, well, the Chinese history tends to start with the Lungshan in the, the 3000 BC or so, and they dominated the eastern Yellow River Valley. 3,000 years before Christ. Right. Okay, so we are going back a ways. Uh, I, I mean, the Peloponnesian War, I always kind of think that, that you can go with Alexander the Great and then the Peloponnesian War. You, you can get a good handle on time if you start working with the ancient Greeks, but you're basically 2,000 years before then. Correct. So when do they emerge as a people about whom we have... You know, a centrality of a figure, a historical figure. What what kind of timeline are we talking about? The first unequivocally historical individual we know comes with the, the rise of the Qin Dynasty around the time you were just talking about 220 or so B.C. But there's clearly a people, a Chinese people, um, long, long, long before that. And is that Chinese people... A genetic subgroup? Is it a geographic gathering? Is it a cultural identification? Recent studies have shown that there was more genetic diversity than perhaps some today would like to admit, but it's clearly culturally a, a group. Okay, so... A distinct group that we can see tracing even into today with some of the, the kinds of things they eat, the, the ways they... Um, group themselves politically and socially. Um, the, even some of the, the architecture goes way, way back into the 2000 B.C. or more. All right, but let's, let's skip up to the Qin Dynasty, because what okay. you gave me there is a place to get a rock hold. Because it is at the, the same time the Greek world is coming into being that will form the West in, um, in alliance with Jerusalem, Greece and you know, Athens and Jerusalem. You're telling me the Qin Dynasty is where we ought to begin? Is that where the emperors begin? That's the first person to adopt the title emperor. The Chinese will retroactively ascribe that title to the Wang of the, the Chu and Shang dynasties as well, much earlier. So back to 1500 or so BC, those guys aren't using the title emperor. And there's some disagreement about did all these guys really exist or not? There, there's clearly a polity there. And so when we were, use the term dynasty, which is familiar, I've got a whole list of dynasties in my notes here, 
Right. Uh, uh, what does that mean? What does a dynasty mean? In, in, you know, in in the West, it means uh, succession by blood until it's broken. Is that the same within China? Broadly speaking, yes. It's, it's not necessarily um, patriarchal, patrilinear, the way we tend to assume in the West. Father, son, father, son, directly. But it, it is a family until that family is displaced. All right. Now, Dr. Arn has joined us. Dr. Arn, I'm learning that I don't know anything about China, and it's a lot older than I thought. How much time have you spent in a long academic career studying China? Mm, probably 45 or 50 minutes. <laughs> you and I are alike. Actually, I've read four books, so I'm ahead of you. Uh, are you finding a newfound interest in it? Yeah, I've been sitting up uh, last night and this morning reading about China. But Dave is the man. Dave teaches it. So he's well, he's, he's brought me up to 221 B.C., so we've got a West and we've got an East at this point. What did your reading tell you last night? Well, um, I have been thinking about this for many years. China is, see, but we'll see if Dave agrees with this, China is different from us. China's religion is not the same kind of thing there. It's not monotheism. It's, uh, it's old. Uh, it, uh, it's early doctrines get adapted. The, the, the premier is the president, general secretary of the Communist Party is the, is interested in the history of China and the ancient practices, and that's tied to, uh, what, nationalism. So well, when we come uh, back from break, we'll pick up with the uh, the Qin Dynasty and move forward. My guest is Dr. David Stewart. He is a Buckeye. Larry Arn has kept him locked away in the basement at Hillsdale for many years, but we actually have an Ohio State doctorate and master's historian who is here to shed light from the lantern of sweet reason in the North Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back with Dr. Stewart and President Larry Arn when we return. Stay tuned. Welcome back. America to Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. The last radio hour of the week. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Every conversation I've had with Dr. Larry Arn and his colleagues at Hillsdale, dating back to 2013, are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale. This is the first time we've actually talked specifically about China, and we are joined by Dr. David Stewart and the professor of history at Hillsdale. To both of you gentlemen, I tell you, last night I was at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, and we reopened the East Room, completely refurbished by Charlie and Ling Zhang. Uh, the technology was 15 years old. The floor was worn out. The drapes were done. We needed new movie screens. We needed, they did it all. Charlie and Ling did it all. New broadcast studio. And the first video we showed was of Richard Nixon in China in 1972, a very famous clip where he said he was standing on the Great Wall with Mrs. Nixon. He said, this is truly a great wall, and it reflects a great people. It was mocked at the time, but it is the fact of China, and I'll go to you, Dr. Stewart, with this, that that Great Wall tells us all we need to know about the Qin Dynasty, doesn't it? Not all we need to know. They certainly were the, the first to start the Great Wall, not the one that Nixon was standing on. Oh, interesting. That was a, a, that was a Ming dynasty. Um, and Nixon was actually saying that to tweak the communists, who at that point were downplaying the Great Wall, even discussing dismantling it completely. Um, so there, there was a little sparring there with, with Nixon making that comment, in fact. What does that wall tell us about the people of China? Dave? Well, one, one misperception about the Great Wall is that it was simply a giant barrier to keep bad guys out and pretty much nothing else. Um, but both the Qin and later the Ming, who were the two great architects of the Great Wall, 
primary architects of the Great Wall, both of them use it as part of a multifaceted strategy. They, they didn't sort of bury their head in the sand and say, well, we built a wall, nobody will come now. Other dynasties perhaps approach that more, like the Song Dynasty, but the Qin saw it as part of a strategy basically to funnel anybody who wants to invade in certain directions where the Qin could then in, encounter them on their own terms. Oh, interesting. And by the way, that remains a, a Sun Yu uh, 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 maxim, which is it's best not to fight on ground chosen by your enemies. Larry Arn, what does it say to you that we can see this thing from space? Well, uh, you know, China is, it's hard, to, it's hard to say that China is continuous, but it's continuous in some important respects for 5,000 years, and this is one of its great products. And uh, I, I agree with Dave, what they'll know about it. Uh, the, the Great Wall, the years of it overlap, you know, the great opening of China along the Silk Road, which meant that there were Europeans in China from an early day and, and, uh, and you know, and continuously. And the Chinese are, are actively today reconstituting something like that with a great trade belt that, that, you know, basically goes along the southern edge of Eurasia. And that's important because we made the point last week that, uh, you know, a majority of the, a big majority of the people of the population of the world lives in Eurasia. And, you know, China is weighted toward Asia, toward China. And so they, they've, they've been outward reaching as well as defensive for a very long time. What I learned from Dr. Stewart's notes, what I've always referred to as the Han people, actually began as a Western dynasty and then developed an Eastern dynasty, but that the Han people don't really arrive on the scene until relatively modern times, about 200 years before Christ through the beginning of the A.D. era. Uh, do you think now, Dr. Stewart, it's fair to re- refer to China as predominantly Han? Um, well, first let me just explain that real briefly, that, that that ethnic group was there. They didn't adopt the name Han until the dynasty. I see. But it's not that they were immigrating at that point. I see. But do they, is that now the, the, the dominant culture in China is the Han culture? Overwhelmingly. Probably 80 to 90 percent of Chinese um, would describe themselves as Han or would accept that. That is name in Chinese for Chinese is Han. And so, very quick to the break, when we talk about China, are we talking about the Han people? The Chinese would think so, yes. The, the ethnic minorities in China might disagree. I know, but that's what, I, I think that's the key thing, is that if we're going to dive into this as Americans who don't know much, begin with the idea there is one Chinese people, one dominant ethnic group. It is the Han a lot is explained when you get your arms around that. I'll be back with Dr. Stewart, Dr. Larry Arn, right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back. America to you with the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is my guest, as is Dr. David Stewart of the History Department at Hillsdale. We are trying to get a little grounding in China. Dr. Arn, before you joined us this morning, I told Dr. Stewart, in recent weeks, I had reread Dr. Kissinger's On China, Michael Pillsbury's 100-Year War, Dr. Graham Allison's Destined for War, Robert Kaplan's Asia's Cauldron. And by circumstance of family, I married into a military family. 
my wife's grandfather was wounded in the Boxer Rebellion. In fact, he recovered next to a fellow named Jellico, who was also wounded in that. I've got the last 110 years down pretty well through Sun Yat-sen, through the Communist Revolution, the Civil War, the PRC. How much of this do we need to know before those hundred years, in your opinion, Dr. Arn, before I go back to Dr. Stewart, to ask us, how do we learn what Dr. Arn just told us we either need or don't need to know? Uh, well, um, Winston Churchill provides us the answer to that. Um, he's, uh, he, he gets a letter once from Franklin Roosevelt in the Second World War, and he says, and Roosevelt says, it's an emergency. We have to help Chiang Kai-shek because he's to be lived if... Uh, China goes communist, it'll change the world. And uh, Churchill replied, uh, China is very old. Communism is very new. And uh, so I think, first of all, and my own little opinion is that what's going on in China is born of some differences between China and us. And, you know, Marxism is a virulent Western doctrine, not an Eastern or Chinese doctrine. But they, they don't have monotheism in, in China. Religion is, well, it, they do when it's expo- imported from the West, but uh, religion is the religion of ancestors and traditions and uh, sort of pagan deities. And uh, it's their own thing, and it ties them back to their people and their way, and that. You know, communism as it's practiced in China today is very much like that. And the second thing is we're going to hear next week from Mark Blitz that Confucius, which is a beautiful writer in many ways and has some powerful and salutary things to say, is not, however, a philosophic writer. He doesn't appeal beyond tradition to some rightness that transcends both human making and tradition. And so... It, these are a people who have accepted communism. Indeed, maybe they were prone to it in certain ways, but they are absorbing it and adapting it to their way. And that's, I think, what Dave thinks they've been doing for a very long time. Uh, so, but he, can speak, he can speak to that. And so, Dr. Stewart, given that background, how should a Westerner who believes that the great power competition of the next 100 years at least is between the United States and China read so as to be prepared to understand what are relatively recent events in China's history, but as old as half of our republic in our view. How, how ought we to prepare for that? I think we need to understand the Chinese. Many scholars would argue that the Chinese aren't writ large. Fundamentally, they haven't embraced communism. Communism is simply... The, the latest manifestation, as Dr. Arndt suggesting, of a much longer tradition of um, bureaucratism. Um, they, they've had a civil service for 1,500 years now. Um, and so many scholars read co- Chinese communism as not really communism at all, but simply the latest form of self-interest. And so I would say that, that we need to see China not in ideological terms, but they are pursuing their self-interest. I, I remember from Dr. Kissinger quoting one of their sages, that which is divided must unify and that which is unified must divide, meaning that the the vastness of China has always been either coming out of or going into civil war, and therefore it's never really concerned the West. President Xi seems to me to be, if you're right, that communism is a 
is a new clothing on an old emperor model among the strongest, most significant rulers in Chinese history. It has more power at his disposal, more people at his disposal, more reach at his disposal, and indeed more ambition in his heart. Does that concern you, Dr. Stewart? I'm, I don't want to disagree with you on your own show. I, don't, I, I think he is up there, but we see similar things and elements in the, at points in the Han Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty, um, the Ming Dynasty. China has reached these high points, and that may be part of what concerns the contemporary rulers of China looking at their own history, that they reach these moments when they're vast, um, territorially even more vast than they are now, and then inevitably things fall apart relatively quickly. Now, Dr. Stewart, I've got to tell you, part of their concern. always feel free to disagree with me. Dr. Arn routinely embarrasses me and mocks me, so it's, it's actually perfectly fine to disagree with me. Uh, Dr. Arn, you want to do any of the latter two at this point? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so, it's, uh, it, you know, if you, you have to, you know, one thing about thinking about China is we are dealing with something real and something great something that's lasted a long time. That's well put. That's important. And, and, and that something is absent. The, the two main, relatively absent, almost absent, the two main drivers of Western civilization, which is philosophy and theology, monotheism. One God for every man. And, you know, that means that laps right over. And, and you know, Christianity is the largest minority religion in China, but it, you know, it has and has had a hard road to hoe because they, you know, they somehow it's it's not quite like the ancient world with the, you know, because what religion was like in in Greece in in what in 600 to 1500 BC was the the worship the worship of the local gods. There were the pagan natural gods, but there were the ancestor gods, too. And those were all mixed up together. China is rather like that, too. But what dawned in Greece and, and then, you know, and in Jerusalem and in Athens, too, in Jerusalem in a religious way, uh, is this idea that there's some standard that makes us all brothers. Now, uh, I've got... I've got Dr. Stewart's outline, and I look at it like I do with these other books. The Qin Dynasty, the Western Han Dynasty, the Eastern Han Dynasty. This Three Kingdoms period is so crucial in all of the modern writers that I've read. The Tang Dynasty, the Mongols, the Ming, the Manchu. How do you teach it, Dr. Stewart? How do you you even approach something this big? Well, we do it as a semester-long course, so we have lots of time to make sure people understand, our students understand the connections, um, the similarities, dissimilarities as we're moving through this. Um, and then at Hillsdale, it's nice because then, because of the student's solid grounding in the West, it's easier to talk about ways in which this is like or unlike our own experience. There's a point of reference to learn even the very different by comparing it to something that's known. Sort of like Dr. Arn was just doing with the religion. And I, and I was going to ask Dr. Arn after that, did you in your studies at Arkansas with Dr. Strauss or Dr. Jaff, I mean, did you spend much time on China? Did you compare and contrast China? Uh, no, uh, I, I've been over there. I've never been to mainland China, but I've been to uh, Taiwan and South Korea and Japan many times. And, and Hong uh, Kong. And, and Hong Kong. And, and Hong Kong. Yeah, many times. And I, 
you know, I, I love those people. They're they're very outgoing people. They're very open people. Uh, but in another way, in the way I was describing, they were closed. Uh, I know this Strauss had uh, had uh, a thing that I, I I never met Leo Strauss. I studied with his student Harry Jaffa in California. But uh, uh, Professor Jaffa picked this up from Strauss. He believed that the that philosophy and monotheism are ex- ex- high expressions of human potential and looking up toward the divine. And he believed that that had to exist in the East as well, it being old and all of that. And so Professor Jeff was always given scholarships to people who could read Mandarin and English to write about the comparisons. And I will say that uh, over the 40 years that I've known of that going on, it's been a largely fruitless task. They haven't found... um, you know, I mean, we'll talk to Mark Blitz, who's a great political philosopher and an old friend of mine next week, but he will tell us about Confucius, and he will. And the point is, Confucius operates on the level of Aristotle's ethics, but it is very different. And that seems to be that difference is huge. Dr. Stewart, um, one of the great, great scholars and practitioners of Chinese diplomacy told me personally, we do not have to worry about China in an expeditionary sense. They do not seek territory. They do not want to control land. They wish to be a dominant culture. Do you agree with that assessment? Certainly, historically, that's been worn out, where they historically tried to dominate the Korean Peninsula, Tibet, of course, Afghanistan at some points. Many Chinese still believe Vietnam is essentially a, a rogue territory. So historically, that, that's, I think, worn out. Uh, Larry Arn, do you believe that to be the case? Well, I, I do. Uh, I mean, it, you know, China's history is very old. There is an instance in it when they had a huge ocean-going navy, oh, yes. largest sailing ships ever built, and they, you know, they visited Africa and South America, and they sort of went around the world, and that didn't last very long, and they stopped doing that. But they they are very interested in the things connected by land and uh you know because they've they welcomed marco polo and his father and his brother first and there were many europeans the the polos were not the first to go there and then those trade roads were well developed and if you just picture in your mind or look uh on a map of eurasia uh it's a long way from northern china to berlin and yet goods and people have traveled that since you know, almost as long as there's been history. And those ocean-going eras, that has given rise to the cow's tongue, the nine-dash line, which they now use to assert control over the strategically central South China Sea, Robert Kaplan was telling me. Uh, let me ask a, a question that gets at what I'm trying to to discover. Dr. Stewart, in the years that you've been teaching, you've been up at Hillsdale a long time, has the number of students interested in China increased, decreased, or stayed roughly the same as a percentage of the undergraduate body? It was high, and then it went down about 10 years ago, and it's been increasing again since then. Dr. Arn, do you think it's going to have to increase even more? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I imagine. It, you know, it, it depends upon events, right? We, You know, you have to remember about Hillsdale that this thing that I described as the contribution to human history of the West 
we try to understand that, both in its theological and in its philosophic aspect. And so these kids are 18 to 21 years old, and they're drinking from a fire hose, figuring all that out. So when we but come yeah, back from break, I, here's the I question for both grow. of you. We, we come back. If that tradition you labor on is surrounded and imperiled, don't we have to look out? That's my question for Dr. R and Dr. Stewart when we come back for the last segment of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. All things are collected at hillsdale.edu. This conversation, everyone, back to 2013 at hillsdale.edu. Don't go anywhere. Come back, and I'll ask that central question. Do we have to change the way we study China? Because China has changed. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. We're beginning a three-week uh, examination of China and the West and what we ought to know and how we ought to prepare and what we ought to read. Dr. David Stewart is a professor at Hillsdale College in the History Department. Of course, Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. I want to go to you in turn, Dr. Stewart, on a recommendation for a radio audience. How would you recommend they go about knowing at least the minimum of what they ought to know about this maximum state when it comes to population and ambition in the world? I I would suggest a a solid history of China that covers the whole of history, not just the last 50 years, not just current events. I think that short reading is very, very misleading. And so what is that book or what are those books? Um, the one I usually recommend to my students, there are several that are very good, but I recommend um, Roberts is the name of the author. It's just called A History of China. It's, it's brief. It's maybe 200, 250 pages, um, accessible, but covers the span, um, stays away from a lot of the political kinds of controversies. I think it's a very nice introduction. Dr. Arn, how important is it for people to not only begin the introduction, but to continue the consideration? Well, I think that we should emulate the example of the Chinese. Uh, they have learned a very great deal about us, and uh, they they have an enormous effort to do that. They, you know, colleges all over America sort of make their financial bones by getting paid tuition from China, and they want to know about us. And yet, at the same time, they keep up a deep interest in themselves, and you know, try to understand themselves. So you'll, in my opinion is you'll never understand China without understanding the West. And so we need to do that too. We need to do that first, in fact. Now, I have uh, given advice to my daughter about my grandchildren who are quite young and not doing languages yet. But the advice is when it comes time to choose a language, choose Mandarin. And that's because it's the advice I would have given to a Frenchman 250 years ago. The English, you know, de Tocqueville was right. They're going to run the world for a long time. You'd better at least speak their language. Do you agree with that, David Stewart? In a purely pragmatic sense, yes, there's lots of reasons to study other languages as well. But um, clearly, the, the Mandarin understanding of Chinese is going to be a dominant, perhaps the dominant language in the near future. Dr. Arn. Uh, yeah, if you add Greek or Latin and make a list of two, then, then I agree. We talked about this when we talked about the Barnaby uh, initiative for Hillsdale Charter Schools, because, uh, and I've talked about it with my friends at Great Hearts, and great, great primary and secondary school don't want to embrace Mandarin. But I, I view it as almost a strategic necessity online with learning science after Sputnik, Larry Arndt. 
Well, it's uh, sure, but you know, I I, I am told that uh, Mandarin is much easier to speak than it is to read, because there and write harder yet because there are thousands of characters you have to learn. It doesn't work the way our languages work. I don't know what Dave thinks about that. Dave, certainly, it's much harder to learn, and it's hard to find teachers of Mandarin who are sympathetic and concert with the Western values, which is part of the problem. Finding enough teachers of Mandarin would be very problematic. Teachers that you would want teaching your children or grandchildren. And so, Dr. Arndt, a last question for you as we we end this hour. We're going to talk about Confucianism next week with your friend from Claremont. Is there anything that one reads to get ready for that? Mm-hmm. Well, the analects of Confucius are readable and uh, not too long. Do they and confuse are- more than they, you know, if you pick up Pascal's pen says they make a little bit of sense, but do do these make sense to a Westerner? Well, you know, Mark Blitz gave a talk about Confucius on the Hillsdale campus at a conference a few months ago, and you can find it under the CCA, Center for Constructive Alternatives. And people could watch that. That's a 40-minute talk, and it's clear. Mark is a very good teacher. And, and, you know, he just sort of lays out what it's about. He, he, he believes very much, as every good scholar does, in giving whatever you read a sympathetic reason. Try first to understand what it's trying to say, how it understands itself. I have he found that, that it is under he, Understanding China, Hillsdale College, September 8th through September 11th. So you have been about this project. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, we... Uh, of course, you know, we see, first of all, I, you know, I, I do not accept that it's a known thing that China is going to dominate the world. They've got a lot of problems. And, uh, you know, that it is an advantage to live in that great landmass where most of the world's population lives. It's very hard to get around it. And, you know, we, uh, you know, are, oh, we have excellent communications inside. China is about the same size an area is the United States, and you know, four times the population. But we can get around our country really fast, and we can get from our country to both sides of the Eurasian landmass conveniently by shipping, which is the best way to move goods around the world. So they've got problems, too. And, you know, we don't want a war with China. We just don't want them to dominate us and the world. Well, I have just tweeted out the link to the conference Dr. Arn referred to. I want to thank Dr. David Stewart, professor of history at Hillsdale College. I want to thank Dr. Larry Arn for getting us launched on this next week, Confucius America. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, General Lissimo. Thanks, all of you, for listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show.